Hurricane season arrived yesterday. So did a tropical depression. Why are so many children in Florida nursing homes? And is Miami's new Latin American hero a leftist? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at whether Southeast Florida could extend its five-year winning streak with hurricanes and why, if not, we'll at least have an even better heads-up system. We'll also examine why a decade-long federal lawsuit may force Florida to remove medically fragile kids from homes for the elderly. And we'll discuss the modernizing effect Chile's young president, Gabriel Boric, may have on a movement that haunts South Florida, the Latin American left. All that coming right up after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. The Atlantic hurricane season officially started yesterday, and right on cue, a tropical depression has already formed near Florida in the Gulf of Mexico, a body of water scientists warn is heating up faster than others around the world. As if we needed any reminder after watching the Gulf's heat turn Hurricane Ian into the monster that ravaged southwest Florida last year. It's a reminder that global warming is revising our traditional notions of tropical storms and the climatological norms we believe they follow. This year, for example, the climate phenomenon known as El Nino should make it more difficult for hurricanes to form. But those higher sea surface temperatures that fuel hurricanes could nullify the El Nino effect. That means the five-year run of good luck southeast Florida has had since Hurricane Irma hit us in 2017 has no guarantee of continuing. We live in a time when complacency about hurricanes just isn't an option. No one knows that better than WLRN's environment editor, Jenny Stoletovich. She joins me here in the studio to preview the 2023 hurricane season, as well as some new and better storm forecasting that goes online this year. Jenny, thanks for coming in. Thank you. We'd like to hear how you, our listeners, are preparing for this hurricane season. Call us at 800-743-WLRN. 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Jenny, let's start with what Robbie Berg, the senior specialist at the National Hurricane Center here in Miami, told WLRN this week about how things could play out. And uh, NOAA is predicting a near normal season. However, I would stress that the probability of a near normal season is almost as equal to having possibly a low normal season as an above normal season. So that might seem a little contradictory, uh, but the reason is, is that there's several different competing climate factors that we're, we're watching. And when we get in these types of situations, it really means that the season could turn out in a very many sorts of ways. I definitely call that hedging your bets, <laughs> right? But, but I guess if I were a hurricane specialist these days, I'd be hedging my bets too. I mean, briefly, Jenny, what is the forecast for this season? Right. So near normal is it's actually arranged this year um, for 12 to 17 named storms, mm -hmm. five to nine hurricanes, and then one to four major hurricanes where winds are above 103 miles per hour, so a cat three mm -hmm. or higher. Right. But you also mentioned to me earlier that the National Hurricane Center's confidence in that forecast isn't exactly robust. 
Right. When when he said that there was just as much a chance for an above normal and a below normal as a near normal, <laughs> the <laughs> right. breakdown is their probability is 40 percent mm-hmm. for the near normal and 30 percent above or 30 percent below. Normally, their confidence level is like almost is in the 70 percent range. Right. Uh, so this is a lot lower than normal. OK, so let's start with that assumption I mentioned earlier that El Nino, for example, should make this hurricane season quieter. Why is that the usual assumption with El El Nino? And yet, why is that not necessarily the case anymore? So an El El Nino is a Pacific weather pattern, um, and it produces higher uh, atmospheric winds, what we hear it called shear a lot, um, over the Atlantic. And that can sort of knock the top off a hurricane and tamp them down. It can weaken storms. So we like El Ninos. Um, The last three years has been, we've had La Ninas, but this year we have a pretty strong forecast for an El Nino. Um, that will help right. us. And uh, you mentioned the La Nina phenomenon that we've had in the past three years. That does not uh, intimidate Correct. Correct. That's a drier pattern, and it doesn't do anything to help us with with hurricanes, it, it doesn't it doesn't weaken them at all. Right. Um, but this year with the with the El Nino, which is good, we also have higher sea surface temperatures. Uh, this is something that's been happening more and more as the climate warms the planet. We have higher ocean temperatures, and that is essentially a fuel for hurricanes as they move right. across the ocean. They hit those super warm waters that just like feeds the storm. Right. So even though El Nino might help to, as they I often hear them say, decapitate hurricanes that are trying to form, that could be nullified by the fact that the fuel that the hurricanes have below is yeah, really... Yeah, it's offsetting. Yeah, they offset it. Offsetting, yeah. Okay, well, that's definitely something to keep in mind. In the past, we could also rely on, say, 40-year cycles of active and quiet hurricane seasons. If, if I'm not mistaken, we were supposed to be in a mild cycle now, um, but, but there's an unexpected r- reason that's not related to climate change that that may be responsible for that. Right. So these are these 40 year patterns and the Mm -hmm. busy cycle started in about 1995 or the early 90s. So we should be pivoting over, um, but we're not. There's some theory that we will not now because that pattern because we've done basically, we, we, the Earth is sh- was shadowed by air pollution. Air pollution. We've done right, a better. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not explaining this very no, no, well, no, no. but but because we have done a better job of controlling um, air pollution, uh, it, 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 we don't get that shading that 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 causes mm-hmm. the planet to or fewer hurricanes. Um, the this oscillation, the 40 year cycle was developed based on the period of hurricanes, which only goes back to the industrial revolution, basically. Mm -hmm. So what was not quite factored into that was what role pollution had. In the 70s, we started cleaning up pollution. Now we've done a much better job. So there are some scientists that theorize that we will not that that pattern right. is going to go so away. So ironically, that, that pollution was sort of blocking a lot of that solar radiation that would help make the sea temperatures higher and therefore generate Right, hurricanes. Right. And, and and as you and I were discussing earlier, that's sort of akin to the same phenomenon we've, we've talked about a lot in recent years about how dust from the Sahara Desert that gets into the atmosphere can do the same thing in terms of helping to block hurricane formation for us, right? Right, right. And dry out the atmosphere as well. But the dust and the shading is, is, is good for sea surface temperatures. Right. So, <laughs> so in effect, the, the good job we've done at reducing air pollution has sort of then diminished that cycle 
that we used to be able to depend on in terms of active and then not so active uh, hurricane season. So we'll put that in the category of no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> um, so would you say the simplest thing for us to do from now on is just treat every hurricane season equally then, meaning potentially active? Right, right. I mean, as the Hurricane Center and emergency managers always say, it only takes one, you know, so busy or not, if you get one, you get one. Um, The other thing that's happened is um, the the average season is now under a different definition. Uh, In in a couple of years ago, average amounted to 12 name storms. Now it's up to 14 name storms. Yeah, so we'll, and we'll we'll be talking about that a little bit, but 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 the bottom line is all of these sort of patterns and cycles and things that we used to just take for granted when it comes to hurricanes, uh, we're, we're really climate change is just sort of forcing us to throw those out the window. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the storms that we're getting are 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 the impacts are more severe, right? right. So storm mm-hmm. surge, you know, is higher than it used to be, worse than it used to be. The rapid intensification, we've seen a lot of those storms where it just blows up off the coast and we don't have as much warning. So, yeah, I mean, it <laughs> as I said before, just no room anymore for being sort of complacent no. or 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 to to feel like there we can take a breather. No. And 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 also a factor is how crowded South Florida is now. So when it comes yeah. to evacuating, that's a whole nother level of hazard in a way. Like yeah. you have to prepare to evacuate in a way that you didn't have to 30 years ago. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm talking with WLRN Environment Editor Jenny Stiletovich about the new hurricane season. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Jenny, in in recent years, stronger hurricanes like Ian last September that I mentioned, or Michael in in 2018, for example, that hit the panhandle, they have been emerging in the Gulf and sparing us here on the Atlantic side of the peninsula. At least that's, that's what it seems like to us. Is there any meteorological reason for that trend of of hurricanes just tending either to develop or even gravitate toward the the Gulf more than uh, the Atlantic side here? Well, I I think because of the higher sea surface temperatures, you know, those storms are getting bigger. It used to be that the beginning of the season, the storms always come up through the Caribbean and and kind of across the Gulf. Um, When those waters warm up now, then we see bigger, worse storms. Also, rising sea levels and, and storm surge, the impacts are worse. Ian, my gosh, you know, and oh, Michael, yeah. um, you get storm surges that are just just brutal. And, and let's talk about why the Gulf of Mexico, as I mentioned earlier, is heating up faster than, as scientists are saying, faster than probably any other body of water in the world. Why is that? It is a big, flat, enclosed uh, gulf. Right. You know, and um, the circulation there, it's, they don't have a Gulf Stream f- f- flying by and, and helping move right. water through. Um, and I just think that it is. I, I just sort of, it's sort of like a boiling pot of water then right, compared right. to other bodies of water, right? I think, I, yeah, a big old frying pan. Yeah. I mean, we, when we talked about it earlier, I had mentioned a, a story I had done on some dolphin studies on mahi mahi, and they're seeing the same thing where the higher ocean temperatures is also changing uh, fish breeding patterns there. And that is a huge breadbasket when it comes to fisheries. I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. No, no, no. no. But, I, I, but it's a huge it's, area of concern because it's just a fishery for, you know, a huge food supply for our country. Right. And you also mentioned that because the Gulf is so much hotter than perhaps other bodies of water, 
the, the, the hurricanes are, are lasting longer into the season there. Is, is that also a Well, factor? that's up the Atlantic coast. We'll see like warmer right. waters are extending uh-huh. further north, so you'll see stronger storms up there. Uh-huh. I think in the Gulf, what they are looking at now is how those currents move in the eddies that they spend. They spin mm-hmm. off. Those are pockets of deep water that can stay longer than, than the current. And when a hurricane crosses over one of those pockets, it'll pick up all that energy and heat right. from an eddy and, and can get much more intense. So climate change is particularly bad news for the Gulf Coast, not just the Gulf Coast of Florida, but the Gulf Coast of Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, et cetera. Between the intensity of the storms and the storm surge patterns, because it's a flat shelf there, we have yeah. a deep shelf. Um, yeah. I, right. And you bring me exactly to my next question. That obviously one of the big things on people's minds here after the, 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 the devastated Gulf Coast um, uh, is flooding. Right. The, 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 the bigger storm surge that global warming seems to be adding to hurricanes now. But we do have one mitigating factor on this side of the Florida Peninsula. Right. 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 We have. Um, our, our coastline drops off, um, so the storm surge, as it's a hurricane is pushing water ashore, it can't roll up as much water. This is the way the Hurricane Center explained it to me, right. um, as on the Gulf Coast, which is a flat shelf. It's like rolling a snowball. If the incline is, right. is not as steep, you're going to pick up more as you roll as you roll forward. Right. And that's, that's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people. A lot of people would think, well, I mean, if, 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 the, if the waters off the Gulf Coast are more shallow, uh, th- shouldn't that mean less storm surge when a hurricane is hitting that coast? As compa- and, if, and if it's deeper on the Atlantic, doesn't that give the surge more water to, to, to bring right up into our face? But, but it's not, that's not the way it is. That's not the way it was explained yeah. to me, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 that, that, that shelf that you're talking about on the Gulf Coast gives the surge a, a bitter, it's sort of like a bowling alley effect, more, more of, a, of, a, of a takeoff strip. Right, right, uh, to to, right. to to hit hit us with, but that hardly means we're not vulnerable to surge and flooding over here. You also say there are more than enough factors here that can make surge worse as well, right? Right. So we've lost what I think ninety percent of our mangroves are brown Biscayne Bay, which were a huge deterrent right. to to storm surge would break up those waves in that water. Um, our reef has been decimated by. You know, climate change is hurting the reef. It's stony coral disease. That's another thing that can shred waves and and mm. sort of weaken those storms. And the, the bleaching and things that weaken the our, right, our coral right. reefs. Yeah. And we we did um, a project with the Hurricane Center um, last year that looked at storm surge and and they modeled Irma uh, for us had it cross Biscayne Bay instead of the Keys so we could see where storm surge would would move. And around Southeast Florida, it was widespread. I mean. That just because we don't have a flat shelf (laughs) doesn't mean that we're not vulnerable to to really big impacts from storm surge. Right. And again, a lot of that, those factors you you pointed out have been unfortunately man-made. Yeah, right. Man-made factors uh, that we really start need to start taking into account. Um, I want to turn now to, to Hurricane Tech. No matter if our season is heavy or light, we do know that will have new and important and, and improved forecasting and tracking tools now. What, what are the most important 
that you so, think we should know about. Right. So this year, the Hurricane Center has a new uh, forecast model that they're using for the first time. They say in testing, that's shown to be uh, between 10 and 15 percent better at forecasting track um, than the ones they're using now. They're going to continue and to use those in tandem with the two they have now. But eventually, this new model will become the primary thing. So it, since Irma, since, so in the last five years, they've improved forecast and intensity track about 40, 45 percent. Wow. So if you add another 15 percent, that's, that's, those, are, those are pretty good. I mean, mm -hmm. they have become pretty accurate at, at the, the track for sure. Um, that's part of the reason why the cone has gotten smaller, because they mm -hmm. know this is the area where a storm could possibly right. hit. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, that'll that'll be a big thing. They also have technology, better technology for drones. Right, you were mentioning drones and gliders, although gliders not meaning flying gliders, but sw swimming gliders. Right, right, and, right. right. <laughs> These underwater gliders that are able to collect a, a lot of important data. Um, this when we talk about sea surface temperatures. Mm -hmm. um, Hurricanes don't just pick up water from the surface. You know, it goes. Right. They can they can draw it from the bottom too. And the deeper that hot water is, the the more of a supply. So the gliders can go deeper in the water right. and, and collect and more. And so this will be more effective then than those pods they they, they used right. to drop from airplanes and and try right. to try, the, try to get the heat data for the temperature data from those. The, the, the dropsons. Right. The sons or as they call them. These glide these underwater gliders then will be more effective at at at, at conveying. What what the uh, the sea temperatures are when, when hurricanes come around, right? Them, right? right, and they're also mm -hmm. they have a network of buoys that they're expanding and improving the kind of information that the buoys get as well, and that does a good job or is helpful in um, forecasting El Ninos and La Ninas. Oh, okay. So in the end, Jenny, uh, you know, in just the minute or so we have left here, um, in the end, our, our definition of as we were saying before of a normal hurricane season is now different, right? I mean, normal used to equal, as you said, 12 named storms. Now it's 14. Why again is that? And what does it tell us about how we need to prepare differently these days? So so every decade or so, they'll update what a, what normal looks like. And two years ago, normal was 12 storms um, a year based on the average from like the 1980s to 2010. Right. The last 30 year average is two more storms. So clearly our seasons are getting busier and more, t and, and you know, we're just getting slammed more with, with more hurricanes. So right. I think it's a good indication that a warming planet is gonna produce more hurricanes. Something we need to keep in mind, obviously. WLRN Environment Editor Jenny Stiletovich will be watching all things hurricane for us this year. Jenny, thanks as always. You're welcome, Tim. Still to come, should some of our most medically fragile children be housed in nursing homes? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. A decade ago, the federal government filed a civil rights lawsuit that is a poignant window into the debate about Florida's treatment of people with disabilities. In this case, almost 200 children with disabilities. The Justice Department accused the state of housing those kids in nursing homes instead of aiding their families with services that would allow them to keep the children in their own homes. The feds argue the practice, in fact, violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. The suit finally went to trial last month. 
and a U.S. district judge now looks set to order Florida to remove these children from nursing homes in Broward and Pinellas counties. Either way, the case also raises the issue of why Florida, despite its prodigious resources, ranks low among U.S. states when it comes to helping people with disabilities. Should children with disabilities be institutionalized in Florida nursing homes? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is Carol Marvin Miller, the Deputy Investigations Editor at our news partner, the Miami Herald. She's following the trial and has done eye-opening reporting on the situation of these children. Carol, thanks as always for coming in. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, it took a decade for this case to come to trial. Why so long? Well, the state of Florida has fought this thing bitterly. Um, In fact, even before the federal government got involved, there is an advocate for people with disabilities in Miami named Matt Dietz, who had been complaining about the institutionalization of children for years. He filed the initial complaint about this that the uh, Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division uh, intervened in. And Florida is just stubborn and willful about this and does not want to change its practices. Mm -hmm. What specifically does the Americans with Disabilities Act say about institutionalizing people with disabilities like these children in places like nursing homes? The ADA, which uh, was a landmark civil rights piece of legislation, requires that uh, people with disabilities live in and be treated in the least restrictive setting. Specifically, people with disabilities are supposed to live either in their own homes or within community settings wherever possible. And governments are required to make accommodations to make that happen when they can. And uh, Florida just uh, does not really believe in that. Florida believes in saving money. Florida has been rationing care for people with disabilities for decades. And when the federal government came in and said, please stop this practice, Florida's reaction was, Basically, mind your own business. Well, when the Justice Department filed the suit, uh, again, a decade ago, it involved almost 200 children. Today, the number is more like 140. Why has the state of Florida been so adamant about sticking to this policy when, in reality, involves it involves a relatively small amount of kids, and so it would seem to involve a relatively small amount of effort and resources to make it possible for them to get the care they need at home with their families. I think part of it is that state health administrators view this litigation, they view the involvement of uh, the the Justice Department as an affront to their sovereignty. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, in pleadings in this court case, Florida has said explicitly, this is an attack upon our sovereignty and we should be able to administer our programs and disperse uh, taxpayer money as we see fit. 
And while the state has been defending these practices, mostly what administrators are saying is, leave us alone, allow us to run our state departments as we would like to. What is life like for most of these children in these nursing homes, would you say? And I think that is in some ways the most offensive element of this policy um, is that these are children. Some of these youngsters go into nursing homes in infancy and they never leave. In fact, one of the reasons why the numbers declined from 200 to 140 is that these kids, they die. You know, they are frail to begin with and they are living uh, lives that are socially, developmentally uh, constricted. The reports that we have read suggest that some of these kids live in cribs or beds that they seldom leave. Occasionally they get out of their cribs and they sit in wheelchairs, maybe in a hallway, they watch television. A few of them have uh, a full day of education. Parents with whom we've spoken said, you know, their kid's education consists of maybe 30 minutes to an hour a day. They do not have activities that are developmentally appropriate or stimulating. Right. Well, what has the state tried to do like like the kids corner it's established in one of these facilities as it's called what is what has the state tried to do to make their lives there more developmentally appropriate for kids nothing uh, very darn little uh, under state law every child even a child with significant disabilities is entitled to a free public education But again, when you speak with these parents and when you speak with advocates for these kids, they tell you that uh, the free appropriate education these kids receive consists of about 30 to 60 minutes a day. Um, And I, I don't get the sense that the education is particularly rigorous Uh, Children need to have uh, stimulation in their lives. They need to have enriching and developmentally appropriate activities. But so many of these kids get absolutely none of that. And you, you spoke with some parents who insist that if they just got the state help they need, they could make having the children at home with them work. They could. The, the biggest impediment to bringing these kids home is the lack of adequate uh, in-home nursing care. Um, Some of these families are entitled to uh, 20 hours a day of um, private duty nursing, but they can't access it. There are waiting lists for nurses the nurses get better jobs and they leave. There was a story that was related in uh, one of the court files where a family finally was able to get their kid out of a nursing home. And the day that he was leaving, they had a a goodbye party and the family got out of the home into the parking lot and they got a call saying the nurse quit before they even got the kid home. And that is the biggest problem these families face is getting money for and then accessing Mm -hmm. in-home nursing care. Now, in Florida's defense, you point out in your most recent article that 
uh, an expert witness for the state, insists that many of these particular children are, as you put it in the article, quote, too frail to live outside long-term care facilities like nursing homes and so neurologically devastated that they are incapable of experiencing the joy or comfort of living with family. Uh, Is that essentially, in a nutshell, the state's position on this, that they just feel that it's impossible to do what the Justice Department is is insisting they, they should, the state should do? Experts who were hired by the federal government dispute that contention, and they dispute it um, harshly. They contend that very few of these kids are, in fact, um, what is called in a persistent vegetative state. Mm-hmm. Even children with profound disabilities are able to experience joy and companionship and the comfort of a family and family life and to have siblings with whom they interact regularly. Uh, The Miami Herald did a series of stories a year ago about a program for kids just like these called the Birth Related Injury uh, Compensation Association, Mm -hmm. NICA. And many of those kids are exactly like these kids. Mm -hmm. They are severely disabled. Some of them are bed bound. And yet, almost all, uh, with, with, with the exception of only two or three families, all those kids live at home with their moms and their dads and their siblings, and they enjoy some semblance of family life, mm-hmm. and they are surrounded by people who love them. And right. so we know, in fact, that it's possible to do that because here you have a separate state agency that succeeds in doing that every single day. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking with Carol Marvin Miller about disabled children being housed in Florida nursing homes. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Carol, you mentioned that expert witnesses for the Justice Department reject that idea that it's hopeless to think these children could be cared for, let alone thrive at home with their families. And one of those witnesses related a poignant moment when she was visiting one of the facilities and watched one of the children essentially try to escape? Yeah, one of the experts for the Justice Department who is a doctor who oversees a program for kids just like this in the state of Wisconsin, she was allowed to tour these homes to visit these kids. And she interviewed most of these families She described an incident in which she had been touring one of the facilities and a child in a crib saw this group of visitors walking through. And that child all of a sudden became very excited and it was clear to her that he wanted to engage with the visitors to interact with them, to socialize. Mm -hmm. And one of the people giving the tour lowered the railing to the child's uh, crib And the child got out, and according to her, he was uh, running uh, like to get to the door. And And one of the people in the nursing homes uh, grabbed him, put him back in the bed, put the rail back up. And her description of that incident was that the child looked uh, 
right. devastated. Now, the, 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 the federal, this, anecdotes like this obviously had an effect on the federal judge in this case, Donald Middlebrooks, who has now indicated he really doesn't buy the state's arguments and he seems to be siding with the Justice Department. Is that right? That is right. In fact, on the last day of the trial, from the bench, the judge said, I'm going to rule with the federal government, and I'm going to order the state to fix this. And the judge then asked both sides to meet together and discuss a possible settlement so that the judge doesn't have to order the state to fix this. Uh, we have we have Spring uh, in Fort Lauderdale. She has a special needs daughter and understands the complexities of taking uh, care of of kids in, in this in this type of situation. Spring, uh, you're on the air. Uh, what could you Good relate afternoon. to us? Good afternoon. Hi there. I I just wanted to mention I this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I have a, a special needs daughter who is a teenager, but she is about four months developmentally. Um, And it has been such a blessing to be able to have her at home with us, but it takes a lot, a lot of effort. It's it's exactly what she was saying. It's it's having an amazing, amazing nursing team, which I do. I consider myself uh, to be incredibly fortunate with that. But it's also being the family being comfortable to get in the weeds in what it takes to care for a medically fragile child. Right. It's worth every single inch, but I'm not going to lie to you guys. It, it takes a lot, and um, and the, the challenge is big. Well, it, so, uh, Spring, I'm, I'm, uh, Spring, thank you very much uh, for, for relating that. And, Carolyn, just the minute we have left, uh, speaking directly to what Spring was just talking about then, what is Judge Middlebricks now recommending that both sides do to remedy this situation? I think the the judge wants the state to find a way to make private duty nursing accessible to these families. Uh, Spring, my heart goes out to you. I have a child with disabilities at home as well. I know that you must have been absolutely terrified when you took your child home. And it is. It's, it's terrifying. But virtually anyone can be trained and taught to be a caregiver. And with the the help you receive from uh, professional nurses, I don't doubt that it is possible for almost any family to take their child home and care for her or him um, within their their family. And and that's that is what these kids want. Nobody wants to grow up in an institution. Nobody. Right. Thanks, Carol. Carol Marvin Miller is the Deputy Investigations Editor for the Miami Herald. Thanks very much. Thank you. Still to come, should South Florida's anti-socialista Latinos be hailing the leftist president of Chile? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Y ahí yo manifesté respetuosamente que tenía una discrepancia con lo que señaló el presidente Lula el día de ayer, en el sentido en que la situación de derechos humanos en Venezuela era una construcción narrativa. No es una construcción narrativa, es una realidad, es seria. That was Chilean President Gabriel Boric this week in Brasilia at the summit of South American heads of state. 
hosted by Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Both Boric and Lula are leftists. But while Lula is 77 years old, Boric is only 37 years old, and that made Boric's stunning rebuke of Lula especially meaningful. You see, at the summit, Lula had embraced dictatorial Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro, who is a socialist. Maduro's human rights record is one of the worst in the hemisphere. But Lula said that was all just an unfair, quote, narrative concocted by the U.S., Boric stood up and said, uh-uh, it's not a narrative, it's a reality, and it's serious. Boric wasn't just slamming Lula, he was slamming all the old leftist leaders in Latin America who for so long have apologized for leftist dictatorships like Maduro's, or Castro's, or Chavez's, or Ortega's. And so I gotta ask, should all the anti leftist Latinos here in South Florida now be reaching out to younger, more pragmatic, less hypocritical leftists in Latin America like Boric if they want to see socialismo go away there. Whether you're Latino or not, what do you think? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Anthony Pereira, He's director of Florida International University's Latin America and Caribbean Center. Tony, welcome. Welcome. I mean, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm saying welcome. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Good afternoon. So this summit of South American presidents in Brazil was supposed to showcase President Lula as a leader of continental integration on issues like energy and crime, right? Didn't really turn out that way, did it? No, as you say, I think Lula, um, you know, exaggerated uh, quite a bit when he talked about this, these human rights abuses being a narrative. I think Boric was correct in pointing out that they weren't just a narrative. Lacaje Po as well, the president of Uruguay, said right. something similar. I mean, he's on the other side of the ideological spectrum. But I think it's very important when you're trying to promote a process of integration um, which is what I think President Lula is trying to do, trying to get back to some sort of project of South American integration, that you don't sweep problems like human rights abuses under the rug. Right, really did backfire on him. Why yeah. did Lula, again, because this wasn't the first time he's done this, why did he make the glaring misstep of praising Maduro like this? And more importantly, why do the older leaders of the Latin American left like him keep insisting on defending dictators like Maduro just because they're fellow leftists. I, I, it might be partly generational, which what you implied in your lead there, that, you know, there is a big difference in age between Boric and Lula. And Lula, you know, Lula was a trade union leader under the dictatorship in Brazil in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He went to jail in the early 80s under the national security laws. Right. And I think at that time, he might have, you know, he might have been uh, romanticized regimes like the Cuban regime uh, because they were enemies of his enemies. Right. Um, you know, that Cold War mentality. I think sometimes that mentality exists on the right as well. I mean, Bolsonaro, sure. uh, former president who went of to... Former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah, and he graduated from the military academy in, in 78. So his same generation. And he has sometimes has that same that same mentality. The enemies of my enemies are are are, are the ones uh, that I should be friends with. And I think Lula just hasn't, for some reason, just hasn't outgrown that. And Boric, as you said, mm -hmm. 
doesn't owe allegiance to these regimes. You know, he doesn't feel that his brand of center leftism owes anything to these guys. And I think that's that's refreshing. And that's what a lot of young people want to hear. Not stuck in that 20th century mindset when Fidel Castro sort of lorded over, um, you know, everything left in in Latin America, obviously. Right. The Cuban Revolution cast a huge, you know, shadow over over the whole region. Right. So why why do you think a younger leftist leader like Gabriel Boric decided to stand up on a major hemispheric stage like this and say, no, we can't keep doing this. I think, you know, if you look at his coalition, um, they are passionately committed to human rights because he's 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 representing people who feel that um, their human rights have not been recognized. Indigenous people, you know, um, women, feminists fighting for gender equality, right. um, people talking about uh, marginalized populations. Mm-hmm. I think he 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 looks at that old time hankering after these old time leftist regimes as a huge obstacle to what he's trying to do. And he's willing to jettison it. For some reason, Lula, uh, and, and you know, I think there is a, a right. younger... And, and if I could just interject, you make a great yeah. point, because one of, yeah. one of the things we have to understand about where Boric is coming from is that is that, that old style of radical leftism helped get a new constitution he was trying to get pushed through in Chile last year rejected by a, a vast majority of Chilean voters, right? I thought that was a good point you made in your article, Tim. That you that that they overplayed their hand and that they um, they they used a kind of maximalism in the constituent assembly that ended up alienating uh, a, a large part of the electorate. You know, as you as right. you, the, cons- as you the constituent assembly that ended up drafting that new constitution that got rejected. Yeah, yeah, and and they a majority were... of the people on that assembly were leftists. Yeah, and I think now what they've done is open the door to to people like Jose Antonio Cast. And people of a, a right winger, right winger who who want a very different constitution, who will probably, you know, get a lot of those provisions that that Boric and his followers wanted. So th- there's a, there's a degree of of hubris there in sort of yeah. overplaying their hand and assuming that they can get the majority to go along with with a fairly radical agenda. Right. And that was just more evidence for younger leftists like Boric that we just can't keep doing things in this old 20th century fashion if we're going to be viable with the 21st century Latin American electorate. I I think you're right. His experience with the Constitution has made him especially sensitive to that fact. But by I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was was just but by standing up to more traditional leftists like Lula and I should mention Mexican President Andres Lopez Obrador, who's busy praising Cuba's dictatorship these days, or Colombian president and former leftist guerrilla Gustavo Petro, who's insisting we should be we shouldn't be uh, so hard on Nicaraguan dictator Daniel Ortega. Tega, also of the left. Um, can we say Boric and his generation are trying to bring the Latin American left into the 21st century? I think so. And I think it's a very important project. And it it, it reminds me of the parallels between Boric and, and some of the people in his coalition and what you what you saw happen to the left in Europe with with Europe, with the, with the project of European integration. There was a, there was a moderation. You know, a lot of the left parties in Europe had been old style 
uh, class-based parties, socialist parties that were committed to nationalizing the means of production, or at least the, the commanding heights of the economies. And they gradually dropped that position. They, they gradually accepted a market economy within the European Union and, and moderated their demands and became, you know, proponents of progressive taxation and welfare states. Um, but they accepted the market economy. And I think Boric is a very similar character. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a fascinating point. Tony, in terms of helping us maybe understand what what a 21st century Latin American left would look like. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm talking with Anthony Pereira about the Latin American left and Gabriel Boric's mic drop in Brasilia this week. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Uh, we have Omar in Boynton Beach, um, and he's saying that the reunion, that the, the, the meeting that took place um, uh, is, is, is a detriment to the Venezuelan people. Omar, what, what exactly are you referring to? Are you referring to the summit in Brasilia this week? Yes, and, and I'm, um, what I'm trying to say is that the reunion between Maduro and, and Lula Ah, okay. What's going to happen is that the Venezuelan people are going to continue on this path of destruction, and and it's been already twenty something years. There is going to be more people leaving the country. There is going to be more suffering inside the country. There is going to be the nothing but worse situations that, that unimaginable. We, we have to make a stand in the American continent right. and realize that communism is taking place because we are allowing it. Omar, are you by chance a, a, a native of Venezuela? Yes, I am. Okay, so what you, and you feel then that this the, 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 the praise that Lula was lavishing on Maduro this week is only going to help exacerbate uh, the, the problems then in Venezuela? Yes. Right. So, Tony, I mean, Omar's, you know, let's let's jump off the point that Omar's making here and let's steer the discussion to South Florida. The Latin American diasporas here are especially focused on condemning the Latin American left because so many expats like Omar and exiles here have fled left wing regimes like Cuba's and Venezuela's. So should they take notice here? when a younger leftist leader like Boric signals a change in thinking, especially when it comes to human rights. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely understand what Omar is saying. You know, he's saying that Lula is normalizing uh, a terrible situation, terrible repression, and which is leading to this exodus of people, and that it can't be tolerated. I absolutely understand that point. But I also agree with your point that the fact that Boric is saying this, and it's Boric, you know, leader of a leftist coalition, should it should get some recognition in South Florida because it means that there is a um you know there's a way out of this this impasse and that there you can reach a, a, a consensus on issues like human rights fundamental issues like human rights and democracy across the ideolo- ideological divide mm-hmm. now should um, should the, should the Biden administration for example now be reaching out to Boric and more modern thinking Latin American leftists like him to perhaps build more pressure on authoritarian leftist regimes to accept democratic and economic reforms like in Venezuela I think so. I mean, I think they probably, you know, they've been criticized for not doing enough. Um, We had a conference at FIU not too long ago uh, in which we had representatives of the Biden administration, um, you you know, talking about their policies. Right. And they 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 say that they're 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 doing that. I think maybe one could question 
um, how effectively they're doing that. Right. But now that a leftist, Tony, like Boric, is finally calling the older leftists like Lula out on their hypocrisy, do you think that makes it all the more important that Latinos here in South Florida think a little harder about their own hypocrisies, such as, for example, the way they themselves, uh, in so many cases, tend to defend anti-democratic right wing leaders in this hemisphere, like former President Donald Trump and former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, whom you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I mean, we're wading into U.S. politics here, but I, I think it is important to be consistent and, you know, to support somebody who promoted a re an insurrection, who didn't have evidence of fraud, but alleged electoral fraud. Um, that is really, that is the behavior of an authoritarian. And to be consistent, uh, I think you should be critical of that. And and not sweep it under the under the rug as as Lula was sweeping under the rug human rights abuses in Venezuela. I think um, it's it's difficult to do because one has to, you know, force oneself to be uh, impartial. But I think when you get to these fundamental issues, that that's what's required. All right. Finally, Tony, in the 30 seconds we have left, let me ask you, as someone who's part Brazilian yourself, how badly did Lula end up damaging his own stature and legacy as a Latin American standard bearer this week? I think there'll be a lot of skepticism of what he said. You know, I think a lot of young people, especially, are with Boric. Um, they don't feel the need to apologize for these regimes. They want a more critical stance. Um, it's part of what they see as the, the way forward, the future. Mm -hmm. um, is is uh, you know is standing up for human rights and democracy, not not uh, sort of apologizing for its absence. Right. And, um, yeah, Anthony, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. But that's a great point. Anthony Pereira is the director of FIU's Latin American Caribbean Center. Tony, thanks very much. Thank you, Tim. Finally, on the roundup. Hurricane season may have started, but so has our mango season. Like the Haydens in my front yard, South Florida's national fruit is starting to show its gorgeous bright reds and yellows. Jorge Zaldivar is a farmer in the Redland area of South Dade, and he says this year's harvest is looking pretty good. From just speaking to other people and, and seeing what I'm what I'm you know seeing on the trees in all the neighborhoods, it seems like this year would be a lot better than others. But again, results may vary based on varieties and conditions on your yard, how much cold exposure you got. Now, some local businesses like the popular Zach the Baker in Wynwood are offering customers deals in exchange for homegrown mangoes these days. Zaldivar says that's a good sign that our mango culture is alive and well. Mango season lasts as late as October for some varieties, but peak season is usually around mid-July. Breakfast is looking better already. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives is the show's technical supervisor. Ariana Otero answered the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, merci, obrigado.
WLRN Public Media.